Good morning, church. It's wonderful to see everybody today, and I'm, I'm glad that you braved the frozen tundra that is outside. Uh, this is two Sundays in a row where we've received a, a fairly daunting winter weather report, and uh, even though it's maybe a little bit more unsafe this week, at least it was more accurate. Um, so we're glad that you're, that you're here today. Uh, I'm especially honored to be here. Um, for those of you who don't know, my name is Andrew Zoko. I'm the Director of Student Ministries here at Ivanrest Church. Uh, and so it's just an honor to be able to be here with you to open up God's Word and see what He has to say to us today. And so let's do just that. Uh, God's Word comes to us today from 1 Samuel chapter 8 which can be found on page 218 in the Bibles uh, in the pews in front of you. So again, 1 Samuel 8, uh, we'll be starting at verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. And so he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day that I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his right. Samuel told all of the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your male and female servants, and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with the king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. This is the word of the Lord. Be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it. This is a phrase that many of you are probably familiar with. It's been made more famous in in pop culture with even the the metal band Metallica capitalizing on the the ominous and cautionary phrase. And full disclosure, I don't know what Metallica song capitalizes on that phrase. I just Googled it and that popped up and I thought, hey, maybe there's somebody out there just wishing for Metallica to be mentioned in a sermon someday. 
And so I, I went for it. Perhaps some of you are familiar with it because uh, a scolding parent recited the phrase to you, followed shortly by, and don't come crawling to me when it blows up in your face. Be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. The great and powerful king of Narnia, who just so happens to be a mighty and ferocious lion in C.S. Lewis's beloved Chronicles of Narnia, expresses a, a very similar sentiment in the prequel to the series, The Magician's Nephew. He leans in close to the two young pr protagonists, Polly and Diggory, and he says, all get what they want, but they do not always like it. Oftentimes, we think that we know what is best for us, and even more frequently, our idea of what is best for us is determined by comparing what we have to what others have in the much greener grass across the street. And so like children repeatedly tapping our mothers on the shoulder, we aren't always careful for what we wish for. And sometimes we get that very thing only to realize that it will, in fact, blow up in our face. And the parent who was there to warn us isn't always there to pick up the pieces. And as we've seen from our text this morning, the elders of Israel, they make a request for what they believe would be best for them. But they are soon to learn that what they wish for has harsh consequences. Now, even before we get up to this request, this is a fairly bleak chapter in Israel's history. Samuel, who had been a faithful judge, a faithful ruler, and even a priest for the nation, is no longer the ruler that he was in his youth. In his advanced age, his sons were newly appointed as judges over Israel, and they were far from good. They were greedy. They perverted justice. They robbed the Israelites and God himself. They were the epitome of apples who had fallen far from the paternal tree. And so when the elders of Israel finally get fed up with Samuel's sons taking advantage of Israel for their own personal gain, the elders take a look around at all of the, the nations surrounding them, standing in greener grass, and they think, you know, the Philistines, they have a king. The Moabites also have a king. Even Egypt, I mean, they have that, that Pharaoh guy, you remember him? And they decide that they want what these other nations have. They want to do away with these obnoxious sons of Samuel and get a king just like all of the other nations. It'll, it'll be great. He's going to ride out in, ahead of Israel's army. He's going to lead us into victory. What a happy day it will be when we leave behind the dated system of judges and get with the times and appoint a king. It'll be great and wonderful, and we will be just like all the other nations. But the problem was is that Israel wasn't supposed to be like all the other nations. They were called out and set apart as God's chosen people in this world. They didn't need a physical human king because they already had a king. They had a divine king. They already had a king who rode out before them and delivered their enemies into their hands. God was doing this consistently. Even when the, the, the battle seemed absolutely stacked against their favor when they had no hope of winning, no hope of defeating their enemies, God would deliver them into their hands. And so this request for a king, in reality, it wasn't a rejection of, of Samuel. It wasn't a rejection of, of faulty human leaders. It was a rejection of God himself. But even this wasn't new, right? Since the very moment that God set his people free from their last oppressive king in Egypt, from that time onward, at every step along the way, they've been rejecting God in favor of false gods. 
And so this rejection again, this request in 1 Samuel 8, is, is almost just another tally mark on the long list of Israel's unfaithfulness to the God who is himself faithful and who had graciously, mercifully, and lovingly called them out to be his people. Here we have just another example of Israel's tendency to conform to worldly means of comfort and security. Now, the desire for a king was not in and of itself completely and utterly morally bankrupt, right? In fact, God saw it coming. And in Deuteronomy 17, we have essentially a prediction that this request would come as God anticipates this moment and he gives Moses and all of Israel a long list of expectations for the king and a long list of the consequences of what would come about as a result of pursuing a human king. And all of this happened years and years before the actual request would come. And so when the elders make this request to Samuel, the warnings that Samuel gives are not new, but the re repetitions of what they should have already heard. Samuel is, is almost just reiterating what the elders should have already known, that a, a, a human king will necessarily be oppressive. That they, if they go this route, they will essentially be taking a step back and becoming slaves once again as they were in Egypt. A human monarch, says God through Samuel, will result in a loss of freedom. As one commentator notes, by nature, royalty is parasitic rather than giving, and kings are never satisfied with the worst. And so Samuel, knowing all of this and asking God and having God remind him of these things, Samuel hears the request and he looks out to the elders and he says, you really want a king like all the other nations? Don't you know what that will mean for you? You'll have to serve him. He's going to rule over you. He's going to tax you. And ultimately, he's going to fail you. A king is going to take your sons, your daughters, your fields and vineyards, your olive groves, your oxen, your donkey, a, a tenth of your crops, a tenth of your vineyards. Is this really what you want? Well, be careful what you wish for, Israel. I like to imagine that Samuel gives this almost long rant-like list and takes a step back and is maybe a little satisfied and convinced that there's no way that the elders are going to ask uh, again for a king because it would be just irrational. It would be totally illogical for them to continue to ask for a king because if they got it, the average Israelite would be reduced to little better than a slave. And yet, shockingly, they all exclaim, no, 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 Samuel, you don't get it. We want a king. We want to be like the other nations. And Israel rejects her true king. Somehow they had lost confidence in God. Somehow they had forgotten how often God had uh, delivered them. They had forgotten how often God, their king, would lead them into battle and bring his chosen people victory. They ignore the evidence of the faithfulness of God and choose instead to focus on the failure of Samuel's sons. And so again, they see the Philistine enemies to the west, they see the Ammonite enemies to the east, and they think that it would be best to be ruled by the standards of the rest of the world. They believed a visible king would be a better military leader. He would build up a, a, an army that would be strong enough to stand against those who would come against them. And even though all of the things that Samuel warns them of are certain to come to pass, the Israelites' minds could not be changed. They thought a king with sword and armor would be their salvation, that the means of the world would meet their needs, and they refused to see the consequences that their request would bring. 
they refused to acknowledge their true deliverer, the true king. Israel's elders seek comfort and security. They're grasping for something that they fail to fully understand, and they will lose the very thing that they hope to ensure by having a king. Security and comfort. We human beings tend to reject the true king, thinking that we we know better, often in search of these very things that Israel is searching for. We're we're really no different when you get down to it uh, from how they were then. We may no longer call out for a king with, with sword and shield, but we do cry out to be ruled by the standards of the world. We cry out for security on our own terms. We see God's faithfulness in our lives one day, and the next we attribute it to chance, to our own hard work, or to some other source. How often do we lack confidence in God? How often do we place our hope and our security elsewhere and reject God as our king? How often do we seek to conform to the rule of the culture around us? The church, like Israel, has historically been guilty of such conformity, becoming like the other nations at the expense of holding God as their king. How many German churches implicitly denied God as their king in favor of being like the other nations when they remained silent as the Nazi regime committed some of the worst atrocities in history? How many American churches implicitly denied God as their king and became like the other nations when they remained silent or even spoke out against the civil rights movement, fearful that this disruption would affect their comfort and security that they enjoyed? How many churches more recently have denied God as their king in favor of other nations when they crowned consumerism as their king and they diluted the truth of the gospel in fear of losing congregants if they preach something that might make them feel uncomfortable? And yet this, this can't be a, an exercise in finger-pointing. Because how many of us have desired to live like all of the other business owners or all of the other employees who maybe cheat the books to line their own pockets to set themselves up more comfortably for retirement rather than acknowledging the fact that God's kingship calls us to live justly and to look to him as our source of comfort and security. Or how many of us have desired to live like all of the other students who might cheat on their tests but, you know, after all, it's not hurting anybody and I, I just forgot to study rather than acknowledging that God's kingship calls us to to live lives of honesty and stewardship? Or how many of us have desired to live like all of the other speakers and worked for the sake of people's praise or in hopes of sounding impressive and intelligent rather than being concerned first and foremost with bringing the king the praise and glory and honor that he is due? That one might hit me a little bit more closely than a lot of you. When we reject the true kingship of God, something will inevitably take its place. Now, when we read this from the perspective of a a 21st century United States citizen, it's perhaps hard to perceive how a king could possibly be a good thing, right? From our vantage point, it's easy to see throughout history that there is so much abuse of power and oppression uh, at the hands of the, the feudal system. 
And so we might imagine kings only as, as living in luxurious palaces while their oppressed people uh, slave away in the muddy fields and live in conditions that aren't fit for any human being with, with disease running rampant, with dirt covering every part of body and home. Maybe when we think of kings, the first thing that pops into our mind is the scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail where King Arthur is walking through the fields and, and two peasants happen to see him and they immediately know that he is royalty because he's not covered in feces. There's little in our minds that could possibly be redemptive about kingship. And so maybe we find ourselves just completely baffled that the Israelites would ask for this at all, especially after they've been directly warned of the consequences and given an, a viable, better alternative. But when we step back and we see this from the cultural and historical context in which the Israelites lived, monarchy was not completely irredeemable. In fact, in many ways, having a king could be pretty beneficial. In an ideal situation, a monarch would promote security and justice in a, in a way that other systems could not. Oftentimes, having sons serve in the military or uh, daughters serve in the king's court was considered an honor. And so without maybe the hindsight that we have as readers of Scripture who know that the, this monarchy in Israel is a huge contributing factor to them being exiled, without that direct knowledge— Maybe the idea of a king seemed a small price to bear. And so they cry out to God for their king, for a king. And as God has always done, he hears the cries of his people. But in the words of, of Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, there is a sense of indignation and pathos in the voice of Yahweh, who knows better but is exhausted with his people, which insists on its own way. They will be allowed their king, but they will not be able to complain later that they had not been forewarned about the cost of kingship. God will give the Israelites what they wished for. And even though this request is evidence of Israel's rejection of God as their true king, and even though it's a demonstration of their failure to embrace their identity as God's chosen people in this world, God will make lemonade out of this lemon. God will give Israel a king, but he it will not be a king like all the other nations. God himself will choose and anoint the king. And even though Saul, Israel's first king, will essentially be everything that Israel was warned about, the next king, David, will be a man after God's own heart. And even more significantly, from his line will come the ultimate king. Out of this misguided request and out of this broken system, the Messiah will come. Out of the line of David would come the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And hundreds of years after this request in 1 Samuel 8, a follower of the greatest of all kings proclaimed that eventually the entire universe will worship and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we hear from the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How amazing is it that we have a God who is able to take this disobedience, even this rejection, and bring about his greatest glory and our greatest deliverance. As fallen and, and broken people, we, we rage against submitting ourselves to anything other than ourselves. 
We so strongly desire to be the masters of our own destinies, the the kings and queens of our own lives. But the reality of the matter is, is that we are always ruled by something. This is exactly Paul's point in Romans 6. We're either slaves to sin, to some faulty king like the other nations who is bound to fail us, or we are slaves to righteousness, to the true king in whom alone we can find genuine security and comfort. When our hope and our trust is in any other king, we will be sadly disappointed. When our hope and our trust is in any other king, we are rejecting the true king. And when that happens, when we choose the rule of another king, something precious is lost. And we hardly even take notice at times. And that something precious is the fullness of life under the yoke of the true king. In Christ, we have the only king whose rule does not lead to oppression, whose rule is not parasitic, quite the opposite, in fact. For his rule provides the greatest freedom. Our God and king frees us from the fear that causes us to want to be like the other nations because when we make him our king, our security and our comfort is not dependent on circumstance. It's not dependent on how large our bank accounts or our 401ks are. It's not dependent upon our GPAs. It's not dependent on how many people come into us after the service and tell us that they appreciated the sermon. It's not dependent on anything except for what our king has done for us. And so Timothy Keller, in his book, Jesus the King, beautifully describes our relationship to God when we recognize Jesus' lordship, his kingship over our lives. He writes this. As a child blossoms under the authority of a wise and good parent, as a team flourishes under the direction of a skillful, brilliant coach, so when you come under the healing of royal hands, under the kingship of Jesus, everything in your life will begin to heal. And when he comes back, everything sad will come untrue. His return will usher in the end of fear, suffering, and death. All other kings are indeed oppressive and parasitic. Jesus is the only king who leaves his throne for our sake. And by his grace alone, he enables us to cling to him as our king. And that by his kingship and in his kingdom, we might truly know genuine security and comfort. To him be the glory and honor forever. Let's pray. Sovereign King, Lord of heaven and earth, we confess that we are often tempted by the allure of false kings. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would acknowledge your true kingship and we would embrace the fullness of life that is found in you alone. Make us citizens of your kingdom, enveloped in the true comfort and security of the one true king. In the name that is above every name and to the glory of God the Father Almighty, we pray. Amen.